Throughout Christ's ministry, he called people to follow him, to deny self in pursuit of Christ above all else. But what is Christ's call to deny ourselves, take up our own cross, and follow him mean for us today? Is this call made to the neglect of all other earthly responsibilities? The gospel of Jesus has implications for every part of our lives, and we must learn what these are if we are to faithfully follow him. In Mark's gospel, we will learn of the kingdom of God and our part in it. We'll see Christ's identity as the suffering servant, his authority as the son of God, and what each of these mean for those who call Christ Lord. As we look at the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel, we'll see what it means to grow as his disciples and lay down our lives as we follow him. Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you just saw, we're starting a new series in Mark. Um, really briefly, I just wanted to share. So uh, most sermon series, we have those little bumper videos because if you didn't know, we have new people joining us pretty much every week. And those bumper videos are just a brief summary of what we're going to be spending uh, the next, I mean, what, 11 months studying together. So it's just a way to encapsulate the, the primary points of the messages that we're going to be walking through. So today, after two and a half years together, I decided it was time for us to walk through one of the gospel accounts. And part of the reason I picked Mark is because Mark, more than any of the other Gospels, really emphasizes the implications of Jesus' call to follow after him, which I think is appropriate considering the discipleship series that we did over the month of November coming into December. The other thing that Mark does really well is, is he takes people's expectations of the role of the Messiah, that is Christ, and he flips them on their head. See, what what people were looking for when they talked about and thought and planned for the Messiah was a warrior king, and what they got instead was a suffering servant, which I think has some really strong implications for us today, because as I look at our cultural landscape today, we Christians have become overly accustomed to recognition, power, and prestige, but how do we respond when we're marginalized and ostracized from those who have power today? Mark will encourage us to remain faithful. Now, one of the uh, uh, unique characteristics of Mark's gospel as well is just how quickly things move. So many of us remember uh, the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, etc. John just goes on and on and on, expanding and explaining all this robust theology and then the implications for us of Jesus' message. Mark keeps things brief and succinct and quickly moves from one scene to the next before we even have time to contemplate the implications of what he just said. Now, one thing to note as well, that writing, writing in the first century is, is very different than writing in the 21st century. They had different goals, different aims, different approaches than we do today, which if you think about it, makes sense, right? Like if they're writing 2,000 years ago, who here had to read Romeo and Juliet in high school? Bob, you probably read it every week, right? Just a refresher. If you didn't know, Bob's an English teacher. So I was, I was thinking through like, the differences between the way language has changed over the past 400 years. Last I checked, uh, 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 Shakespeare wrote in English. Am I right, Bob? Yeah, but it's a different English than what we use today. So I was thinking through that scene that most of us know uh, where Romeo sees Juliet out on her balcony. Is that, am I in the right spot there, Bob? Okay, great. Thanks for the help. Um, so what Romeo says when he sees her is, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. 
Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou her maid art far more fair than she. It is my lady, oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were, she speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? And, I mean, at the end of that, I say, what of that? (laughs) Bob, what does he mean? Oh, he's being romantic. So I was just trying to think through, how do you summarize that whole thing today? She's lit. And it it, it encapsulates the entire thing. It's very romantic. It's very, like, winsome and wholesome. Um, But you can say it in two words, which is essentially what Mark's gospel does. As you compare him to the other gospels, he takes these long, elaborate, ornate ideas and summarizes them in very brief, succinct phraseology. So as we're walking through Mark over the next year together, I want to encourage you, don't impose our 21st century ideas onto a first century book. Now, when we go back and read something like this, we tend to think linearly and subsequently, but that is not how the gospel writers are meant to be interpreted. So instead of writing things chronologically, like first this happened, then that happened, then this happened, as we would often tell stories, they wrote things thematically and theologically. So as we think through these books, what they're trying to communicate is truths about who God is as they write. Additionally, Mark was, was actually uses a lot of repetition throughout his book. So he used the same phrase over and over repeatedly as this book was actually meant to be read aloud. So he's trying to help people have like repeated phrases that they can hang their hats on and then remember this story after they have heard it read to them. So with that in mind, who wrote this gospel? Why is it that we call it or refer to it as Mark? Well, as these four gospels were compiled together, so remember we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the very beginning of our New Testament, which by the way, we're going to read it in a minute, so uh, turn to Mark chapter 1 in either your journal Bibles, your own Bible, your device, whatever it is. If you don't have a Bible, grab a blue one. It's on page 488. Um, as these four Gospels were written in the first century and started being spread throughout out the empire and people were, were getting copies of the books, very early on, they started having labels associated with them. So each one, the oldest manuscripts we have are labeled with the Gospel according to blank. So we, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the earliest manuscripts that we have of Mark's Gospel are actually labeled the Gospel according to Mark. So then the question becomes, who was Mark. Well, the earliest church tradition that we have points to a person named John Mark, the John Mark who traveled with Peter and Paul during the early spread of the church. In fact, he is first mentioned in Acts 12, verse 12. So this is the story where where, uh, Peter has gotten out of prison miraculously from an angel, and then remember he goes to someone's house and knocks on the door, and then the girl comes running up, hears it's Peter, and thinks it's a ghost, and then leaves him at the door. So that took place at John Mark's house. So Acts 12, 12 says, when he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter, as soon as he was released from prison, actually goes to John Mark's house. Now, some of the reason this is significant is because it points us to the reality that John Mark was most likely someone who came from affluence, someone who had wealth, financially well off. The early church actually met in homes that could accommodate really large groups, and it seems like John Mark's mother's home was one of those homes. Now, when we get to the story of Mark, one of the the things most people know or have heard, if you spent any time at church, is John Mark is the one who had this relational split with Paul during one of the missionary journeys, which led Paul and Barnabas to go their separate ways. Thankfully, 
because of reconciliation and, and the repentance that comes because of the gospel, at some point after that relational split, Paul and John Mark were reconciled. So later on in, in Paul's uh, later letters in, in uh, Timothy, Paul actually asks Timothy to bring John Mark with him to visit because, and I quote, Paul said, he is very useful to me. That's one thing we can celebrate with the joys of the gospel message, bringing reconciliation to people who are relationally broken. Uh, one other line that points uh, uh, to Mark's, Mark's authorship comes from an early church father who is named Eusebius. Now, Eusebius quotes from another church father named Papias, who quotes from another church father named the Apostle John. You may have heard of him. John wrote uh, one of the Gospels, the Gospel according to John. He wrote 1st through 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So, tracing the, this, this uh, flow down, you have the Apostle John, who discipled a guy named Papias, who wrote a bunch of books about his interaction and discipling from John. Those books we don't have anymore. But we have a bunch of other writers after him who collected some of the sayings of Papias, one of which is quoted from Eusebius in the early 300s. Eusebius, quoting Papias again, said this, Mark, that's what book we're in, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, notice this, but not in order, all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord or been one of his followers, but later, as I said, a follower of Peter. Peter used to teach, as the occasion demanded, without giving systematic arrangement to the Lord's sayings, so that Mark did not err in writing down some things just as he recalled them. For he had one overriding purpose, to omit nothing that he had heard and to make no false statements in his account." So again, remember, Eusebius in the early 300s is quoting from a guy, let me change the font here, a guy named Papias, who lived between 60 and 130 AD, who was discipled and mentored by the Apostle John. So tracing this flow of thought, we can go all the way back to the New Testament writers, the ones who were interacting with and engaging with Jesus, who all pointed to John Mark being the author of this gospel. Now, remember, he says it's not chronological, it's not in order, but there is a broad overview to Mark's letter. And like any biblical discussion, there is debate about how best to outline this book. It seems that if you look at the full broad storyline, Mark thought of this book like a good screenwriter would write a story, as a story in three different parts categorized by different locations. So it begins with Jesus' ministry in Galilee for the first eight chapters. From there, Jesus turns his attention and focus to Jerusalem, which then recounts Jesus and the disciples' journey to Jerusalem, which is hinged on Peter's confession of who Jesus actually is. That is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and finally lands on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, culminating in his death and resurrection. Now, part of the reason that I think this is actually a helpful outline of, of the way Mark intended the book to be read is because of what we read of how Peter summarized the gospel message in Acts chapter 10. So Acts ch chapter 10 is, is, is Peter sharing the story of Jesus, and he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
So you can see this movement from Galilee, moving about, doing good, and then finally landing in Jerusalem where Jesus died a, a horrible death. And since Mark was, was Peter's disciple, it would make sense that Mark would catalog or categorize the story of Jesus in a similar order. Now, um, there are th kind of three big overarching ideas uh, or themes that I think emerge in Mark's gospel that will be helpful for us as we spend the next number of months reading through them together. One of them begins with, with how do you categorize the gospels? Like, are the gospels an account of biography? Are these an account of, of systematic theology? The best argument I have heard or description of them is an extended passion narrative. Like, if you look at the overview of this, we spend eight chapters with just the, the, the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, and then you spend literally the second half of the book recounting essentially Jesus' last two weeks of life. And most of the other Gospels are actually similar. It's, the point is getting to the cross. It's talking about Jesus' sacrificial death, His atonement, and His resurrection. All the other stuff is just like this preliminary stuff to get to the primary point of the Gospel message. But the, the, the big themes that I want you, you to be thinking through as we work through this book, the first question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the most important question for anyone who has ever lived. And Mark is actually bookended with this theme. So if we, spoiler alert, look ahead a little bit to verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's, that's Mark right out of the gate, tells you exactly what his point is. And then at the end of the book, after Jesus dies, there's someone that confesses, surely this man was the Son of God, a Roman centurion. Those who were outside, those who were not a part of the chosen people, were, was the one that recognized and affirmed who Jesus actually was. But then a subset of this question is, because Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, why did He suffer? This, this book was most likely written during a time of intense persecution from Nero. So this book also serves as a reminder that Jesus suffered too, which leads us to the second emphasis that we see through Mark's gospel, and that is, what does it mean to follow Him? Another way of asking that is, what does it mean to be a disciple? So just as Jesus was a suffering servant, in order for us to follow Him means that we too will face suffering and persecution. But we will also see a wide variety of responses to Jesus. And surprisingly, throughout the entire gospel account, the ones who get it, who like understand who Jesus was, aren't his disciples. In fact, the book ends by the disciples being described as afraid and trembling. And then the book ends. This is, to be honest, it's an appropriate response to a resurrected Savior, isn't it? You just saw him beaten to a pulp and died on a cross. It would be shocking, alarming, surprising to see that. But Mark intentionally leaves this story unresolved forcing us as the reader or the hearer to ask, how will I respond to this good news? The third key that uh, is, is important to understanding, Mark, is the word immediately. Um, I'd encourage you as we're reading through this or, or just if you want some leisure time, I was actually thinking this would be a good project for Tanner Gimble, um, give him something to do. Um, there are either 41 or 42 uses of the word immediately. I heard conflicting reports as I was reading through uh, my commentaries this week. So if you can tell Tanner to count for me sometime this week, I'd appreciate that. Um, actually, I counted four uses of immediately just in the 20 verses that we're going to be studying today. So Mark is someone who's just going to keep moving immediately, immediately. He's, he's a bit like someone who tells a rambling story that you're just waiting for them to pause so you can interject, but, but they won't let you. Like, and then, and then, which I found is, is the way kids, all kids tell stories. So every time my kids tell a story, it's and then, and then, and that reminds me, and by the way, 
you never get to the point. So, with that said, we're going to read Mark 1 together. If you uh, have it by now, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Now, um, let me give you one brief note as well. You don't necessarily have to read along with me as I'm reading this text to you, because there is something to just hearing and receiving God's Word being spoken over you. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, feel free, but don't feel like you have to. There's, some, there's power in the words being spoken to you as well. So hear the Word of God from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. As you're seated, I'd invite you to once again, please pray with me. God, we thank you for the inspiration of these words. We thank you for the, the different emphases that, that the gospel writers brought to us and the truths that are contained in them. I pray that as, as we are reminded of, of who Jesus is, who your one and only begotten Son is, and, and what it means for us that we would be a transformed people, that we would take seriously the command to follow after you, that we would count the cost, that we would suffer as good servants of you, And I pray that you would help us to remain faithful until the day that you return and take us home. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this book begins with with a bit of a preparation or someone preparing the way for Jesus. And the first verse is actually loaded with massive implications and, and requires our careful attention to understand what it is that Mark is drawing our attention to, as well as how the verse first verse sets up the theme for the rest of the book. So let's start at the beginning, which appropriately enough is where Mark begins. He says the beginning. Now Mark doesn't begin in the same place as John's gospel. Remember, uh, John's gospel begins like before time even existed. Mark would rather dispense with the pleasantries and get directly into the important stuff. But this is also a reminder for us that God is doing something new here in human history. 
So just as in the beginning of the world, God was working here now in the beginning of the salvation or the redemption of the world, God is starting with a new beginning. Now, this beginning is about the gospel, literally the good news. Now, one of the things that I didn't mention earlier is that Mark was most likely written to a Roman audience, those who didn't grow up with the Jewish background. And when they would have heard the word gospel, their ears would have perked up. Uh, Think of of, uh, years ago when people used to read newspapers. If someone were to walk by you shouting, extra, extra, read all about it, you'd think there was some kind of big world event that was taking place. Well, in many cases, the good news that was spread through the Roman Empire was related to a victory in battle. So Roman Christians would have been waiting to see how this victory in battle took place. And, And then Mark will go on throughout this book to, again, subvert these expectations and reveal that victory only comes about through suffering. Now, he begins, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just so you know, Jesus was his first name. Christ is not his last name. So it wasn't like Mary and Joseph Christ, and then they had Jesus Christ. Christ is a title that refers to his Messiahship. It it, it literally translated just means the anointed one. This is the person that God had had promised and prophesied about all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall. He is the serpent crusher who would redeem the world and provide a way for people to be brought back to God. Now, not only is he the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, he is also the Son of God. Now, no one would have expected God himself to come to earth and redeem a wicked humanity, but that's exactly how God accomplished redemption. And and we'll recite this this, uh, catechism question in a little bit this morning, but in order for us to be brought back to God, we needed a Redeemer who is both God and man, which is why God sent his one and only Son into the world. Now, this, this first verse actually became a bit of a motto for the early church. And one of the ways that they determined who was a believer and and who was not was using a little symbol that looked like this. Now, if you've read the Gospels before, you know there's a ton in the Gospels about fish. Fish was the primary meat of the day. So unlike we uh, 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 Minnesotans, instead of eating hamburger helper with every meal, they ate fish helper with every meal. But but this fish also is, is loaded with stories throughout the Gospels. If you think through, Jesus' first disciples were fishermen. Think about the, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus divides loaves and fishes. Um, but do you know what this symbol is called? An ichthus. I was waiting for you, Dad. You're the one that told me this. The ichthus actually is, is serving as, as a motto that summarizes or encapsulates this first verse. It's an acronym. So in Greek, it's Jesus Christos Theos Huios Simon, which stands for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So this ichthus became the motto, a summary of Mark 1, verse 1, a way of encapsulating this beautiful gospel truth in a little symbol like a fish. Now, unlike the other gospels as well, Mark spends no time on the miraculous conception or Jesus' genealogy. Instead, the story begins with a prophecy. Now remember, writing primarily to a Roman audience, his Roman audience wouldn't have cared who his Jewish ancestry was. Remember, for the Jews, ancestor mattered greatly. Just read the book of Galatians to find out how much they emphasized it. But the Romans wouldn't have cared. Just like we in America today are largely comprised of mutts, the Roman world was comprised of people from all over the world who were first and foremost Romans. But having a prophet speak an oracle would have mattered greatly to the Romans, especially if that oracle turned out to be true. Now, the prophecy that Mark quotes from actually quotes a couple different Old Testament passages. So he says, as it is written, Isaiah the prophet, but then he actually goes on to quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. 
In that section, Malachi is a prophecy about judgment coming. And the truth is that God will judge the world, but not in the way the Jews were thinking. Because first, the first coming is going to be a coming of grace and a means, a way to provide salvation from the incoming judgment. But then in Isaiah, so the first part, Malachi 3.1, is, is, is this part. Starting here is, is the prophecy from Isaiah. And in this place, it's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This prophecy is addressing the coming of a shepherd-like God who will take care of his sheep. Now, there's overlap between these two texts to show that there's a precursor coming to the Messiah, the one who will prepare the way for him. Who is that? Again, Mark dispenses with the pleasantries and goes right to it. John appeared. There's no messing around. There's no giving any backstory or explanation, just dropping right in. And John's primary message or mode or ministry when he came was baptizing and proclaiming. The two things John was sent to do is baptizing and proclaiming. Now, notice where John was ministering in the wilderness. The wilderness throughout the biblical storyline often serves as a place where people met with God. Uh, Think of the story of of, uh, Moses and the burning bush as he was out in the wilderness taking care of sheep. Think of Elijah who flees from Ahab out into the wilderness and then God speaks to him in a still small voice. Think of David who repeatedly had to flee from Saul and then he went out into the wilderness. And even in the New Testament, after the Apostle Paul is converted, he goes out into the wilderness for two years. Hold on to that thought because the wilderness idea will come up again. But notice that he also proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this word repentance is one that, that we uh, kind of have, have taken as, a, as a, a Christian word today, but repentance literally re- refers to a change of direction or orientation. Like if you turn down a, a dead-end street thinking that it connects through, uh, like the best example I have ever lived of repentance was when I uh, was using my, my Apple Maps when they first came out. It was not very good, just FYI. As a diehard Apple aficionado, I am free to admit that. So I was trying to use Apple Maps as, as in the beta testing, like before all the bugs have gotten worked out, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I lived at the time. I turned down a street, and the, and the Apple Maps told me it would take me all the way through. As soon as I turned in, there was nothing but a roadblock in front of me, which meant I confessed my sins, opened up Google Maps, turned around, and continued on my way. That, that's the picture that, that is, is denoted when Mark uses the word repentance or when repentance is used throughout the Bible. Now, I've uh, since, again, repented and converted back to Apple Maps. It's much better today. But uh, this idea of repentance is, is a ministry model that, that John is pursuing that seems to be effective. Go out into the wilderness, do, perform baptisms, and proclaim this good news because it says in verse 5 that all the country and all Jerusalem was being drawn to him. Now, part of the, the reason that, that there's all this emphasis on, on the wilderness and, and the Judea and even mentioning is Jerusalem is because this story is meant to be in, in contradiction or in contrast to the positions of power at the time. So the priests, the religious leaders, the, the capital, the center of everything that was taking place in first century Israelite life was in Jerusalem. The priests, the leaders were living in opulence and in much wealth in the city. Now, if you were here for Christmas, I, I talked about uh, in, in Luke's account. We, we read at the beginning of Luke's account the story of Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's dad. Zechariah came from the right lineage. He was in the right profession. He was married to a woman who was in the right lineage, and he was serving in Jerusalem, the capital city, the biggest city in the area. But all of that was useless. Zechariah wasn't the Messiah, and neither is his son, John. 
It's also important to note that the description of, John's, uh, of John and his lifestyle are intentional. The first century audience, especially the Jewish audience, would have picked up the reference to camel's hair and a leather belt. Like usually you read that and you're like, what was wrong with this guy? Eating, wearing camel's hair, wearing a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild hunter. He does not sound very appetizing. I mean, his, uh, his diet was essentially the same as Winnie the Pooh. But this description that, he's, that is said here, clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt, is actually picking up a theme, uh, a description that we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 1, where it describes a man who, and I quote, wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Does anyone have any guesses about who that person would be? Elijah. So when you hear a picture or, or, or a summary of that, this would have been a well-known image in the day. It would be a little bit like me showing you this picture. Who does that stand for? Scott? Did someone say Scott? Someone says to say it. Even my African wife knew it. Thank you. Abraham Lincoln. If you didn't know that, we can talk afterwards. I'll give you a brief American history overview. Um, So just as this picture would bring to mind Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest presidents of the United States, so reading a summary of camel's hair and a leather belt would have brought to mind Elijah in the first century context. Now, notice that Elijah 2.0 actually recognizes what his role is. He is, as Isaiah prophesied, preparing the way for someone who is even mightier than him, which is where now Jesus intersects with this new prophet. This is where we see Jesus' commission coming to take place. Now, just really briefly, we spent a lot of time on that first part, the preparation, the commission, because next week we'll be walking through the call of the disciples again. I'll just touch on it briefly this morning and then expand on it more next week. So don't worry, you're not going to miss anything. This commission is, is, is taking place, and, and as we're reading through these things, remember, everything that we're reading in here is referring to real events that happened in a real place within real human history. So John's entire ministry was to get people ready to hear Jesus' message. So apart from verse 1, the title or like the prelude to the entire book, this is the first instance of Jesus being mentioned. And again, notice that it is very scarce on the details of the event. It just almost in passing mentions that Jesus was one of the people who was baptized by John. But that's not even the primary point Mark is driving to. The primary point is in verses 10 and 11. It says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In the midst of Jesus' baptism, heaven is ripped or torn open and the Spirit descends on him. A couple things to note. First, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 64, verse 1, where it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Guess what? He did. The request Isaiah asks centuries before this takes place has been granted in God-made flesh. But let's also think through the way the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, He comes down on people for a specific time and for a specific purpose, and then He leaves them. Not so with Jesus. And after Jesus' ministry, instead of leaving, after Jesus dies, the Spirit is then sent out to live in the lives of all of Jesus' followers. And once again, just like Jesus, He will never leave us. Finally, the Father speaks out about His one and only Son, and again quotes from two other prophecies from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, 1, which says in Psalm 2, 7, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And in Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now again, this in the first century mindset would have brought to mind a warrior king, someone who's going to come and, and upend the political, socioeconomic order of the day, fixing everything that was broken and establishing his rule and reign here on earth in Jerusalem where he would conquer the entire world and bring reconciliation and peace finally. But that's not the way Jesus went, is it? This is a reminder for us that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, notice as well that all three persons of the Trinity, those three persons who are eternally existing in perfect union with each other, are present in Jesus' ministry. Church, don't miss this reality. Our faith is inherently Trinitarian. The Father plans salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, and the Spirit fulfills that salvation. Notice as well who Jesus submits himself to in his incarnation. He first of all submits to the Father by being sent, but now in verse 12, he submits himself to the Spirit. Notice it says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Again, we have this wilderness theme popping up. Uh, this was a time for, for Jesus to have a season of prayer and preparation before he begins his ministry. How many times do we miss things because we don't take enough time to pray and prepare, much less submit ourselves to the working of the Holy Spirit? As I was uh, growing up playing sports, one of the things that the uh, uh, mottos that was drilled into me is, is, and I'll take the not as kind word out, but poor planning leads to poor performance. Has anyone ever heard that phrase? Poor planning leads to poor performance. Well, for us who are in Christ, poor prayer is going to lead us to poor performance. How often do we take time to, to stop, to contemplate, to reflect, to get away for a season and, and pray and seek the face of the Lord, submit ourselves to the will and working of the Holy Spirit before we start pursuing something that we think God is calling us to? Now, it also says that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Again, remember, that, that is important throughout all of, all of Israel's history. And, and this, this wilderness is described as a place with the wild animals, a.k.a. it's a dangerous place, not a place where you want to just relax and sustain. And what this is showing us is that God must sustain him. Otherwise, death is imminent in his life. Now, this time in the wilderness for Jesus also serves to signify that Jesus is a new Israel. Just as Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. And Micah has preached an entire message on the temptations of Christ, so go listen to that for more detail. But where Israel was found unworthy, Jesus is found worthy. And after being ministered to the angels, he moves on to go begin his ministry. So what we've seen in this, in this section here, the commission of Christ, is Jesus has been affirmed by his Father. He's been tested in the wilderness, and unlike every person to go before him, Adam, Eve, and Israel, he remained faithful. He refused to give in to the temptation, and he submitted himself to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and only after that is it time to begin his ministry. Now, just so you can get some perspective on the area that we're talking about, remember, this is a real place. The story that we're reading actually took place. It's, it's recording historical events that happened in a specific area of the world. You can go visit this place today. So all the stuff that, that we've read about so far largely takes place up north in Galilee. So if you can't read it, this little line right here is the Jordan River. Travels all the way from uh, the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem that was mentioned a little bit ago is over here. 
So somewhere in this area would have been the wilderness that, that uh, Jesus would have, have walked away to after his baptism, and somewhere along here would have been where John was performing his baptisms. Now, a little bit closer up on Galilee, you can see Nazareth, which if you've read any of the other gospel accounts, you know that's, that's where Jesus comes from, and, and it's not a very well thought of place. Like, I grew up in Northfield, so my question was always growing up, can anything good come out of Faribault? Sorry, Lynn Fort, uh, she grew up there. Um, so similarly, Nazareth was thought as like the backwater town where nothing good com- could come out of. All the, 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 uh, the culture, all those, those kinds of things were centered around the Sea of Galilee where there were fishermen, there were disciples, all these other kinds of, of ministries that were going on. So appropriately enough, after Jesus' time in the wilderness, he goes to the Sea of Galilee. And this is where we see the initiation of Jesus' ministry. So after, uh, Jesus, after John's ministry, the one who, who was commanded to prepare the way for the Lord, Jesus then goes on to start his own ministry. So he says that the time of preparation is done. Now the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Now this is what Jesus said. Remember, John similar, similarly had a different proclamation that he was doing. But look at the differences between these two proclamations. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. John's comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't say anything about uh, baptism. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. I have baptized you with water, he will baptize you with the Spirit. John's entire focus, his entire aim, his entire goal was to point to someone else. Now, when Jesus comes, he says, this time is fulfilled. This, this kingdom of God, this thing that you've been waiting for, is at hand. It's right here in me. Now, what is, is uh, almost hard for us to, to fathom or wrap our minds around is the kingdom of God is not a place. Notice that the kingdom of God is inaugurated by a person. So what does that look like? If, if, if the first century Israelites who had been eagerly waiting and anticipating Jesus' arrival expect him to come and put up a new kingdom here on earth, what does that mean for us who are new covenant believers today? There is no earthly kingdom that we're aware of, except for we who are sitting right here who are believers. The Bible and the rest of the New Testament will go on to describe this kingdom as people who are aliens, people who are strangers, people who are foreigners. All this means that we, who are a part of the kingdom of God now, are homeless on this side of heaven. That means we, we can't get too comfortable here. God is subverting every expectation that people had. All of us are looking for an earthly kingdom that we can pledge our allegiance, our loyalty to, our, our, get, get our power, our recognition, and our acclaim from, but it can't come on this side of eternity. It only comes on that side. But notice as well that Jesus says, I'll go back to this one, believe in the gospel. So literally, it would just be believe in the good news. That's different, isn't it? Well, just as the kingdom of God is inaugurated by a person, so the gospel message is the message of a person. And who are the first people to believe in this gospel message? Starting in verse 16, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, remember I showed you this picture, that's the Sea of Galilee there. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. 
The first disciples that Jesus calls are two sets of brothers, both of who were fishermen. Now, Jesus, unlike the other rabbis at the time, actually extended an invitation to his disciples to follow him. So the way this was supposed to work in the first century is a pupil would, pupil would look at the available rabbis and then choose one and then seek him out, asking him to become an apprentice or a disciple or a follower. Jesus doesn't leave it up to the disciples, though. Instead, he actually intentionally goes out of his way to pursue them. So what we see here is, is, is following, another way of summarizing following is discipleship, is a call to follow after Jesus which demands or expects from us immediate obedience. Now, again, I said I wasn't going to dig into this too much further, so we'll talk more about this next week as we look at the rest of Jesus' inauguration of His ministry. But as we close today, a couple questions for you. Have you taken that step of obedience? Have you decided to follow Jesus and become a fisher of others? And if you have, if you are a believer, if you have put your your trust, your hope, your confidence in that gospel message, are you submissive to the Spirit's role in your life? Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I I pray that, that you would work in us as we walk through this gospel message. I thank you for all the ways that you subvert our expectations, that you subvert all human expectations, yet at the same time, you also fulfill all our expectations. God, I pray that we would put our hope, our trust, our confidence, our strength, our reliance on you. I pray that we would be faithful in in seeking out ways to fish for other people. I thank you for the ways that you work in our lives to take the things that we're naturally gifted in, our natural proclivities, even our jobs, and, and refocus and reframe them in such a way that helps us point others to you. God, most of all, I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that humiliation, you have now exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God, I thank you for your perfect plan that you have determined from eternity past to create a people, to draw them to yourself. And I pray that we would be found faithful until that day where you come back and finally do establish your reign here on earth. God, until that day, may we be faithful in seeing your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.